Genesis 19, reading from the NIV. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is, a very, it is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request to you. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain including all those living in the cities, 
and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities in the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe, catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zohar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay at Zohar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I lay with my father, let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you can go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him ben He is the father of the Ammonites of today. And we give thanks to God for his word. Let me also just read um, a few verses from 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. And also then from Hebrews 11, just a few verses from Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We thank God for his word to us 
Let's uh, pray before we turn to, well, this is a very difficult passage, but by the grace of God, I assume we will understand what it has to say to us. Lord, we come uh, trembling before your holy word as we are in many ways fearful of the, the holy and true God, but we also know you to be a God of love and grace, and you want to teach us the truth about what's going on in Abraham's world and what's going on in our own world. So, we come humbly before your word, and we pray that we will not argue with it, but that we will learn from it, and we will allow the word to shape us rather than allow the world to shape us. Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Genesis 19, if you have that in front of you, that would be very, very helpful. The reason why we began our service tonight with, um, reading Psalm 1 is that really Psalm 1 is a, an illustration, a visual aid of Genesis 19. Or Genesis 19, in a sense, is a visual aid of, of Psalm 1, probably a better way of putting it. Psalm 1's brief, it's uh, simple, it's very direct. It's a psalm of contrasts between two different walks of life, the godly and the ungodly. Constantly, of course, the church of Jesus Christ is under pressure to compromise with sin and evil, with, um, with ungodliness. The slow-moving tentacles of evil seem to desire to wrap their arms around us and squeeze the joy of the Lord out of us and seek to destroy our willingness and desire to obey our holy God. The psalmist says, watch your path. And he gives us three word pictures. You may remember them. First of all, walking with the wicked. It means flirting with the world, periodically imitating the ways of those who are without Christ and being slowly sucked in. You're walking with the wicked. Then secondly, we have standing with sinners. That means we're slowing down now and we're actually stopping. There's a, a progressive involvement and sinful thinking and sinful ideas. As long as the, the person was walking, there was a good opportunity, a good chance of escape. But that was minimized when he stops. So he's walking, and then he's standing, and then, of course, he sits. He sits with the scoffers and mockers, and all chance of escape is basically gone now. It's a, a picture of permanent settling down and becoming just like the world steady slipping and sliding into rebellion and into sin. So we walk, and maybe we watch. We stop, and we talk. We sit, and we join in. That's the story of Lot, basically, isn't it? He looked at Sodom. We've learned that. Then he chose Sodom, and then he pitched his tent near Sodom, and then eventually he lived inside Sodom. And whatsoever people sow, that shall they also reap. And no culture, no individual can survive if it knows the way of God and then willingly and vigorously rejects the way of God. A godly culture, on the other hand, values and promotes the things of God. A biblical sex ethic, for instance the sanctity of human life, which we thought about this morning, the sanctity of the family unit, the sanctity of marriage, 
the worship of the one and only true and living God. These are the things that a, a godly culture, a godly person values and promotes. Sodom was no such place. And Lot liked it all, the sin and the rebellion, far too much. So Genesis 19 is a hard chapter. I'm sure you picked that up as you read it. I'm sure most of us have known about it and have read it many times. There's lots and lots of sin in Genesis 19 because, of course, there's lots and lots of sin in the world, in every generation, including our own. That's why we love the Bible. It's honest and it's realistic. It describes who people are. It describes how people live. And it presents the answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have lots to get through. This is going to be a long study, so please stick with me. Um, and if you can, and we'll, we'll get to the end and the good news of Christ. First of all, the visitation of the angels in verses 1 to 3. It's the evening hour, and two angels arrive at the gates of Sodom. If you know anything about the culture of those days, the gates of any city where, where the places where business and justice were undertaken, where leaders met and the powerful people met in the evening hour and did their business. And look, of course, who's getting very, very cozy with the high and mighty of Sodom. Yeah, Lot, there he is with them, sitting in the gateway of the city. Of course, once he was pitching his tent near Sodom. Now he's living in a house in the middle of, of Sodom, and he's blended in, he's joined in the life of that city. But he could see, as verse 1 says, he could see very, very quickly that there was something special, there was something godly about these two visitors, angels in human form. The two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground. He got up, he meets them, and in humility and respect, he bows down before them. But verse 2, he goes further. He says, listen, I want to offer you some kind of hospitality and some kind of shelter. Good manners, yes, but probably he knew what was going to happen when the men of the city saw that they had arrived. He was offering protection. The angels would face... Um, would soon face the evil and the sin of Sodom themselves. They knew what was going to happen, and they knew that they would have to rescue Lot, pulling him into the house, first of all, and then pulling him out of the city. They knew all of that. And so they took advantage of Lot's invitation, verse 3. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they now, before we, we, we move on, I, I think it's important here that we see the, the importance of being distinctively different in the way, simply the way we live our lives and the way we do our business. These two angels stood out as being very different to the moral filth of the city of Sodom. They were distinctively different. And so are we to be distinctively different. 
And if we are to impact the world, that's how we do it, by being different to the world. And so I say to you tonight, brothers and sisters, people of God, let's stand up for Jesus, and let's stand out for Jesus in this broken world of ours. And that does, means that in the place of work or the place of study, in our family living, in our friendship circles, here in the place of God's people, we can be distinctively different. But here we have the setting put before us, the visitation of the angels. And then we have the assault of the men of Sodom in verses 4 to 9. This is absolutely horrible. It's disgusting and ugly. Sodom really was an evil and rotten place. It's not just the practice of this homosexual sin. Ezekiel 16 tells us that they were proud, they were greedy, they were neglectful of the poor. So it wasn't just sexual sin that they were guilty of. There were many others. But this is the sin that was highlighted here in Genesis 19. The city was unbelievably promiscuous in two ways. The mistreatment of the visitors, first of all, and also this threat of homosexual rape. I mean, they just openly embraced and celebrated sexual sin in ways that shock us or should shock us. Note verse 4. All the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house. Not all of these men would have been homosexual in the sense they, were, they must have been at least bisexual because all the men would have included Lot's daughters, fiancés. But they were eager to join in if they were part of all the men. The whole city was infected. That's hard, not hard for us to understand because once sin gets started, once sin is normalized in any community, it's almost impossible to stop. Like one cancerous cell, it gets into the body. It grows and develops and takes over the whole body. And so this kind of sin can spread throughout a city. Actually, it can spread throughout a nation. The application, I think, is obvious. Don't let sin take root in your life. You can't afford to play with any kind of sin. It can destroy you. We don't compromise with sin. We don't give sin an opportunity, or it will take over and destroy. These men, all these men, were aggressive and hostile that evening in Sodom. They were lusting for fresh meat, demanding that they might have these two men, these two angels. Verse 5, they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Perverse wickedness, isn't it? It's hard to read. It's hard to preach. But friends, the Bible's clear. The world 
hates what I'm going to say next. Soon, actually, what I'm going to say next might become illegal. But we're going to say it anyway. The practice of homosexuality is a sinful, deviant lifestyle. It's strictly forbidden in Scripture. Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, Romans 1, 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Jude 7. All sin, all sin is strictly forbidden in Scripture. All the sins that we enjoy and hide, by the way, whether it be heterosexual sin or any other kind of sin, forbidden. So let's dismantle the proud position we might hold because we're not involved in homosexual sin. However, despite the fact that you might have loved ones or friends who are practicing homosexuals, this sin is particularly sinful. And there are many reasons for that. The one that I find most convincing is that the union between husband and wife within the covenant of marriage is a picture of the union between Christ and His church. Any perversion of the sexual union between anyone but a husband and a wife distorts the gospel picture as Scripture reveals to us. Hence, we have this immense pressure put upon us to ignore Scripture and to disobey God and to compromise. But here's how one commentator put it as I was studying this week. He said this, the compromise on this sin never stops with this one issue. It invariably follows that you end up with a different kind of God, a different kind of salvation, a different kind of judgment, a different understanding of the fall, and a different understanding of human nature, end of quote. So if we think in the modern world we can withdraw one or more sins from God's list of sins, and that's going to have no effect on what we believe or how we live, then we're fools. People have shipwrecked their faith and have started by denying one or more sins. One of my preaching heroes, when I was a young student, on this issue, decided that it was, he didn't believe it was sin. And he shipwrecked his faith. And had an immense pressure put on me to say, what on earth is going on in that man who could teach the Bible with such power and authority? This issue, I believe, is the devil's top trick card. And I'm so glad we have many young people here tonight because you are particularly vulnerable to the pressure to compromise on this issue. Compromising pressure is everywhere. Uh, social media uh, and the films and, and everything, and the, the TV programs, everything, the songs, even in the World Cup, I mean, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. We can't help but be influenced by the world. 
But here's what you should do if you're young tonight, and by the way, if you're old, this is what you've got to do. You say, God, save me. And God, keep me. And shape me, shape my mind, shape my morality, shape the way I live my life, all of the days of my life. Shape me by your word. By your word. Whatever my personal experiences in the past have been, whatever my personal inclinations might be, whatever my friends are saying, or or whatever the, the influencers that I follow, whatever they model, whatever my family members think, or whatever my family members do, shape me by your word. If that's your prayer, if that's your prayer, he will answer it. He really will. Shape me by your word. But Lot wasn't interested, really, in being shaped by anything but his own desires. Six and seven, we see these far too friendly with this group, and not because he's trying to witness to them. There's no evidence of that. But he, he tries to deflect or lust. We have to be at least fair to him. Verse seven, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. He recognized that it is a wicked thing there in verse 7, but I wonder, had, had he ever said this before that evening? I wonder, had he ever, ever spoken to these people that he now lived with? Probably not. And here's why. Compromise tends to stop us speaking. Compromise tends to shut our mouths when it's people we know are love and they're involved and we find it hard. It is hard. But verse 8 is, is diabolical, isn't it? Look, I have two daughters. They've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, this may not be as bad as it sounds, because Lot was guessing that no harm would have come to his daughters, because all of the men of Sodom would have included the fiancés of his two daughters. Surely they would have stopped this happening. And what was important in the culture despite the fact they were willing to do this to the two visitors, is that brides are supposed to be virgins, as they should be, by the way, as they should be. So the chances of anything happening to the two girls was slimish, but still, it's an awful offer to make a father for his two daughters. The risk was, was just surely too high He was a coward. He was mad. He was bad. I mean, dads who are here tonight, could you ever imagine doing this, making this offer with your children, your girls? Would you ever do it? And girls, how would you feel if your dad would make this kind of offer with you? It's diabolical. 
But you see, sin always leads to irrational thinking and irrational decisions. Sin always leads to diabolical decisions. And sin causes collapse when we're under pressure. He was far too concerned with keeping the peace, about looking okay with the people of Sodom, with pleasing people. Lot tries to justify himself. Do you see that there? He says, for they have come under the protection of my roof. I'm trying to be hospitable, but it's not going to cut, is it? The wild crowd will not be satisfied. Verse 9, get out of our way, they say. They're not going to be satisfied until they get what they want. And notice what they say there. This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. They tried to bully him. They tried to intimidate him. And again, I think we see that in our modern world with the militant LGBTQ, etc., lobby, pressure, pressure, pressure on Bible-believing people to shut up and go away. Sit in your corner, they tell us. Don't let the world know about what God has to say about the gift of sex. And we can be bullied into silence. We can be bullied into inaction. And we can actually be bullied into acceptance. We must resist that. But then we see the deliverance of Lot in verse 10 to 22. We haven't time to go to all these verses, but you notice in verse 10 there, uh, Lot's rescued by the two men. He, he um, brings judgment, and uh, they bring judgment in verse 11, where uh, the men are blinded, at least temporarily, so that they cannot have their way. And then in verse 12 and 13, we have just a God's beautiful mercy. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. Gather up your family, escape, get out. It's covenantal, isn't it? Again, we see that. And in verse 14, how we see more laughing. We've noticed that before, haven't we? Here's the next bit of laughing. The sons-in-law, the two men. Then the verse 14, but his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Destruction? Come on. <laughs> You're joking. They can't see the seriousness of sin, and they cannot see the reality of judgment, and so they laugh. It's a joke. <laughs> Again, you see, the application of all of this it's very evident because some, even Christians today, think, oh, this is all very Old Testament, isn't it? This talk about judgment, fire and brimstone and sulfur. Come on. We live in a sophisticated generation. But by the way, bombs cities and countries out of existence, doesn't it? And aborts babies by the million. We think we're more sophisticated. Will it be as bad as that, they ask, as they joke? Oh, yes, it will. 
And by the way, there is coming a day, a day of reckoning, and we are to be ready. And by the way, our family is supposed to be ready too. Our children and grandchildren are supposed to be ready. Are you ready for that day of judgment? Because it's easy for us to become desensitized by sin. And it's easy to become desensitized to the judgment of God. But here we see the grace of God. Um, Act now, verse 15. Get out. Hurry. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When the word speaks, there should be no arguing, no procrastination, no Hesitation, but of course, verse 16, there is hesitation. Lot hesitates. Verse 16, when he hesitated, the man grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. He lingers. Again, we see that sin has so grasped his mind and his heart, he freezes. It's illogical behavior. Judgment and wrath. Or freedom and grace. I mean, what would you choose? He chooses judgment and wrath. It's crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? But no more crazy when unbelievers hesitate every time they hear the gospel and refuse to be saved. That's crazy, isn't it? Because it is really a choice of judgment and wrath or freedom and grace. And unbelievers, every time, choose judgment and wrath. Or, if you're a lukewarm Christian here tonight, you're lukewarm because you choose again and again to be, to be hesitant when it comes to obedience. Oh, you know, don't you? You know what the gospel says. You know what the word says but if you're lukewarm tonight, it's because you're too in love with the world and you're too easily seduced by sin and you, and you hesitate. So the two men, the two angels, grab Lot, his wife and two daughters. They drag them out of the city. And again, Lot, you think he would learn, wouldn't you? You think he would get it, but no, he doesn't. This constant act of mercy, they're led out safely, but he will not do what he's told. Verse 17 is, is this command. As soon as they were brought out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. And in verse 17 to 22, we'll not read all those verses, but basically this is what Lot says. Lot says, I don't want to go to the mountains. I want to go to another sinful city. Would you let me go to another sinful city? I need to go to another sinful city because I'm so in love with sin. Derek Kidner, um, brilliant uh, commentary, said this, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of him. He must have his little Sodom again if life to be supportable. God places red lights in his life, warning signs all over the place, grace and truth again and again, and he ignores it. 
I want my sin. I want my freedom to sin. I need my sin. Cities, of course, are notoriously evil places. Some would say breeding grounds of all kinds of perversion. I remember reading Ray Steadman when I was a boy, not very old, and a book on Ephesians, um, especially the bit about the uh, spiritual warfare. He said the cities were cesspools of human misery. Cesspools of human misery. And so often they are. And people want that. They're attracted to it. That's what they want. That's what Lot wants. And for some reason or other, I can't really work it out. The two angels concede in verses 21 and 22. Okay, they said, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. And they find refuge there. But it's half-hearted, isn't it? It's half-hearted and limited escape. Here's what I see. They were far enough from Sodom to be safe, but close enough to sin to keep committing it. And if truth be told, that's the way we want to live, isn't it? Far enough from Sodom to be saved but close enough to sin, to enjoy it. That's Lot. And then we have, lastly, the judgment of Sodom. Kent Hughes, I'll I'll quote him because these verses are, are, are too long to go down one by one. This is what Kent Hughes says. When the sun was fully up, God extended the red arm of his vengeance and molten rain fell upon the land, incinerating all plant and animal life, so that the cities of the plain became a scorched graveyard. 24 and 25, in a sense, sum that up. Then the Lord rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Absolute and immediate judgment of God. And that's why we read from uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 6, this, um, just at the, before the sermon, it was quoted by, by Stephen at the prayer meeting on Friday morning. By the way, I commend that to you. We had 12 with us on Friday, and it would be good to have to move to another room, wouldn't it? But the verse that Stephen quoted was, He, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. It's a sobering reality. Sin has consequences. Unforgiven sin has desperate consequences. And that's why we thank God for Jesus. Because the wrath of God fell upon Jesus on the cross where he died in our place and became our substitute and he allowed us to know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We take the wrath or he takes the wrath. Where will you spend eternity, friend? Heaven or hell? 
Lot's wife chose foolishly. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Can't go into all the details about why a pillar of salt. But that's what happened. A simple command. Don't look back. It's not complicated, is it? It's easy to understand. But she loved Sodom too much and she loved the sin of Sodom too much. She wanted, she desired, she lusted after the alternative lifestyles of Sodom. And she just wanted to be there. Here's the sad thing. Lot's wife was, uh, Mrs. Lot, so close to being saved. And yet so far, a couple of the commentators said, her heart was still in Sodom even though her feet had left. And I can, I can identify that, can you? Left sin but still wanting to be in sin? Because sin is so attractive, so seducing. Jesus, of course, in the second shortest verse of the Bible, said this, remember Lot's wife. That's Luke 17, 32, often quoted in such sermons. But do you know that the verse, next verse, verse 33 says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Guess what Mrs. Lot decided? She decided she wanted to keep her life. And she lost it. Remember Lot's wife, a striking reminder for us. Lot's wife experienced the fate of the city she identified with. You, There are only two cities. We'll think about that at the end, just... In a few moments' time, the city of God and the city of man. And you and I will experience the fate of the city we identify with. So tonight, we are identified ourselves with the city of God or with the city of man. If it's the city of God, then there's a heavenly inheritance awaiting us. But if it's the city of man, it's my duty to say to you, um, you're going to experience the same judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that, that's what 2 Peter 2, verse 6 says. Jesus says, I, I want to give you life in all its fullness, right now and forevermore. Abraham witnessed the whole scene high up in Mamre, about 3,000 feet up, verse 27. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord, the place where he had interceded. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So he goes back to the very spot where he'd interceded for the righteous. Were there 10? Do you remember he stopped at 10? All kinds of questions. Why did he stop at 10? Were there 10 righteous people in Sodom? Sadly, no. God made a promise. God kept his promise. He always does. Verse 29, notice that. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe. 
that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. That's grace, isn't it? God remembered Abraham. Covenantal grace. Just as ten faithful and righteous people would have saved Sodom and Gomorrah, so because of one believing man, Abraham, his confused nephew, Lot, was saved. The judgment that is to come. We have a very sick and sad story to end chapter 19. We haven't really gone on far too long tonight. Apologies for that. But this sad ending to chapter 19 explains the formation of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they play a very important role in the rest of redemptive history in the Old Testament. But what we see here again is shameful sinning at its worst. I don't know if it's any, is it any worse or better than verse 5? But this is incest. And I suppose here, here's the important, um, can you put on the next slide there? Yeah. Um, it's, it's easy to take people out of Sodom. It's harder to take Sodom out of people. And, and that's basically what we see here. The, the big clue is verse 31, as is the custom over all the earth. They lived by the world's standards. They walked by human sight, not by faith. They were thinking humanly, not spiritually. And the two daughters asked the question, how do we keep the family line going? Let's get dad drunk and let him produce the offspring. It's disgusting, isn't it? It's, it's shameful. Does anything ever come, anything good ever come out of drunkenness? Ever. Drunkenness, lust, incest. It's the way of Sodom. Physically out of Sodom, spiritually and emotionally still in Sodom. The battle between the flesh and the spirit goes on. We can be rescued and we can be saved like Lot was, but still, still have a hankering for Sodom. And it should not be so. So as we finish tonight, um, who are we most like? Kevin DeYoung's brilliant at summarizing this chapter. And he, he puts it in a number of questions. I mean, am I or you... Like Lot. Righteous, yeah, righteous, because that's how he's described in the New Testament, righteous, but amazingly confused. Righteous, but deeply convicted. Conflicted even, sorry, <laughs> convicted. Conflicted, wanting to do the right thing, but unable to say no to the flesh. Are you like Lot tonight? Well then, you need to come before the Lord and His grace and seek His power and seek His pardon and seek His forgiveness and walk in the Spirit. Or are you like Lot's wife, in love with the world, and you keep wanting to look back? You keep wanting to look back. You keep wanting sin, the sin that you left behind. You still want. Or are you like Lot's sons-in-law, the whole idea of this chapter is nonsense to you. You think, what a joke. Or you like Lot's daughters out of Sodom, but still in Sodom. Or, and this is where we end positively, are you like Abraham, the pilgrim? He's 3,000 feet away in the mountains, in the place of safety, 
physically far from Sodom, able to pray for Sodom, still in a tent because he's a sojourner with a pilgrim mentality, an alien and stranger just passing through in the world, but not of the world. And that's why we read from Hebrews 11, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Jesus wants to save us and take us in his arms and lead us home. But if the world grips our hearts, we'll end up like Lot or his family. If Jesus grips our hearts, he will lead us home. Saved and safe. Taught and teaching. Blessed and being a blessing. May God speak by his spirit through his word into our very souls. Let's pray. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Lord, we come before your word. It's a hard word to hear. It's a word that's so different to the word of the world. We're bombarded by all kinds of other narratives And here we have a narrative that is very different. And Lord, we pray you'll give us the courage and the wisdom to hear this truth and to live out this truth and to be saved by this truth. And even though the world around us might mock us and scoff at us and reject us, Lord, we pray for each other in this building tonight, this meeting house, that this will be a place where decisions are made to be yours and to be saved by you and your grace. We ask for your help and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.